When you're talking about marketing food, there's a lot of similarities. What I love about the QSR environment is just the richness of the data, the one-on-one relationship that we establish with guests, the first-party data, the loyalty interactions, which are a lot less common than in the CPG space. On the other hand, obviously in, in CPG, there's a lot of other tools available to drive down the guests down, the consumer down, the the loyalty funnel. Welcome to episode 32 of Clicks to Bricks, the podcast about multi-location marketing. I'm your host, Rob Reed, and my guest today is Marcel Nam. He's Senior Vice President of Marketing for the restaurant category at Focus Brands. So that's Schlotsky's, Moe's Southwest Grill, and McAllister's Deli. Marcel is actually the fourth executive from Focus Brands that we've had on the show, and I believe with the fifth, I'll get a free Cinnabon franchise. Seriously though, it's a great company with a cool model and some iconic brands. Prior to taking this role, Marcel led marketing for Ani Ann's Pretzels, which is part of the Specialty Brands Group. So we talk about the marketing nuances between these different brick and mortar formats and how that shapes his strategy. Marcel Nam, thanks so much for joining us on Clicks to Bricks. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you, Rob. Let's break the ice here with a fun fact about Marcel Nam that most might not know. Fun fact is that on my youth, I hiked what's believed to be Mount Sinai, which is located in the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. That was a really incredible experience. That must have been. What's the vertical gain for hiking Mount Sinai, do you recall? Yeah, I recall that it wasn't, it took us about three hours to get up to the top. We left in the afternoon, spent a freezing night up top because we wanted to see the sunrise up there. And as the sun was rising, somebody had a trumpet and they just took it out and started playing. And it was an incredible, incredible image. You know, those things that you're like, you know, it's, I don't know, 30 years later and stayed in my head. Yeah, those memories tend to be crystal clear. My similar experience was biking to the top of Mount Haleakala in Maui. I think it's the longest paved road climb in the world. It goes wow. from sea level to 10,000 feet. And, <laughs> you know, it's in Hawaii, but like they get snow and it's on a volcano and, you know, going up was hard, but, and you look at that as the goal, but then you got to come down, <laughs> which is, <laughs> you don't really factor that into the whole thing, but sometimes even on a bike coming down can be pretty challenging. So I can imagine. Yeah. Well, I think. We're actually here to break some news, and I don't know that it'll be, by the time this comes out, I don't actually know how much news will be breaking given the delay of these things, but you were previously Chief Marketing and Digital Officer for Ani Ann's Pretzels, and you've been promoted and you have a new role, so tell me about that. Yeah, we realized that there was an opportunity to probably better leverage the scale of all of our brands in order to operate more effectively and more efficiently. In many cases, there's a benefit of operating as a 6,500 location company as opposed to a 300 location brand. And that's what we were looking for. So we reorganized into two different categories, restaurants and specialty. And because I had previous experience in operating in a matrix 
structure like this. And obviously, because we achieved some some good results during my time at NTNs, I was given the opportunity. But when you're in this kind of role, which is less about the day-to-day marketing, and it's more about building capabilities, what I'm quickly realizing, Rob, is there's three things that are very important. One, you probably have to have a small ego because it really doesn't matter the name in the back of the jersey, it's the name on the front of the jersey that, that matters. You need to be a strong collaborator because on a matrix organization, there's many different people that touches um, a brand or a business issue and you need to trust others. And those are the things that make the role very exciting, make the role really challenging. And that's what I'm looking forward to doing. Well, I have to say, I love answers that are like three things, whether it's like doing a presentation or a pitch or just giving an answer. I mean, it really is such a great best practice to be like, oh, you know what? It's about three things. And then boom, boom, boom. It just makes for great content and storytelling and it makes it really memorable. So I wanted to kind of give you props on your first answer out of the gate there with like the three things and maybe you'll have some more as we move along. You know, I think that personally, I have a very hard time sort of doing more than a few things well. In fact, I have a hard time doing a lot of things well. But so I figured you can count me on two or three things. After that, I'd probably fall down the list very fast. Well, I mean, and then unless my count is wrong, you have three brands, right? That's correct. Uh, And so tell me about those three brands and remind me again, your title in the restaurant category. Yeah, I'm a senior vice president of marketing for the restaurant category. So I have oversight of the marketing we have on these three brands. And it's fun because they're really very unique brands. So first you have Schlotzky's. And Schlotzky's is a sandwich shop that delivers a mouthful of big flavors. Exactly what you would expect from a concept that originated in Texas. So uh, a lot of very strong in the Texas, Oklahoma region. So a lot of fun. Then you have Moe's. Moe's is known for that big welcome, right? That welcome to Moe's, which a lot of people can relate to anybody that walks in. And so a place that serves huge, craveable burritos in a fun environment, nothing pretentious or too complicated um, because we're serving delicious burritos. And then we have McAllister's. And McAllister's Deli is all about freshness and hospitality. So think about sweet tea and and a spud. You know, these are iconic McAllister items and a brand that is down to earth, friendly, heartfelt. So a lot of that Southern hospitality originated in Mississippi. So three really very, very fun brands, very different from each other. Yeah, I guess despite having two in the sandwich category, there's just so much room to play in that category, right? It's quite big and, and you can differentiate pretty well even within that, right? That is correct. That is correct. I mean, it is is really important for each of the brands to find their own personality, their own distinctive features. And that is really the balance that when you're working in a business that has a category sort of structure, there's a lot of things that go very well by putting strengths together. But there are many things that you have to respect the individuality of, of each of the businesses that you're touching. And that's very, very important for us. We never lose sight of the individuality of each of the brands. So are you finding, I mean, I guess you've only been in this role with the restaurants for how long? Just a couple months now? Yeah, about four months. Okay. So four months. You're getting your feet under you, but you're coming from the specialty side. You're coming from what is really kind of like a niche brand with Ani Ann's. 
you know, it's a different footprint, it's a different customer journey and customer cycle. Are you finding pretty big differences in how you're thinking about the marketing strategy for the restaurant brands versus a specialty brand like Anians? Yeah, there's certainly some important differences. Anians, right before COVID, had about almost 1,300 locations in the U.S., so it's a fairly sizable and perhaps the most national brand in the focus brand portfolio. But truthfully, there are some very important different characteristics, which then certainly impact how you think about marketing these businesses, right? So for example, all the restaurant brands have dining rooms, whereas all of our specialty brands, you're served at the counter, like an Annie Ann's or a Cinnabon or a Yeah, Carvel. it's a grab and go. Yeah. It's a grab and go. At the same time, most of our specialty brand locations are mall and airport based, whereas very few of our restaurants are. So this is more on the tactical execution of marketing. But if we think about with a consumer centric lens, we realize that many of the trends are similar. So you know, if you think about migration towards digital methods of engaging with, with the brand, an incessant desire for more convenient and frictionless uh, ways of ordering and receiving the food, demand for larger orders because there's more folks living together and spending time together. So these are some of the similarities that we, we look. I think, Rob, I, I've learned through my career that many businesses are similar and different. It just depends on what you want to focus on, right? And I think that sometimes there is a desire to focus on how different we are from each other. And I like to think about on all the ways that we're similar to each other. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, the thing that just strikes me about the two is that one, the specialty brands are mostly, it seems, benefiting from organic foot traffic in lieu of kind of where you're putting them in malls and airports. And then I guess, you know, it's just about having that brand awareness and recognition when they get there. So they're walking by and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I want to grab a pretzel or a Cinnabon. Whereas with the restaurants, I mean, you're competing with, it's a daily thing that people need, you know, people need to eat every day and whether it's lunch or dinner or perhaps breakfast, but it seems like there's a bigger opportunity there to drive specific foot traffic through marketing and various tactics. Yeah, there's no question that specialty brands are in the business of converting traffic versus restaurant brands who are generating traffic. It's a very different way to think about and then obviously has profound implications of the tactics that you're using. So a lot of it around the specialty brands can revolve around geofencing in areas that are very, very close to where you are. Because frankly, if you are in a place where you have captive audiences, it is about converting the folks who are walking right by, you know, your location and be it in the mall or on an airport versus in a restaurant where somebody will be driving up. So the radius is a lot bigger and there are different tactics that you can use that are probably more relevant that way. There's a measure of, of impulsivity, which is so common in snack brands. And there's a little bit more planning that is required in restaurant brands because you got to drive to a location to a specific result. We'll do that, right? So how are you structuring your marketing organization with the three brands? You know, how many layers and roles do you have that are across the brands? And then do you have like staff that's dedicated to each brand? 
Yeah, so each brand has a marketing team led by a VP of marketing that is structured. Some of it is traditional marketing. Some of it is uh, now dedicated to what we call off-premise, which is all that business that takes place outside the dining room, your delivery, your pickups, et cetera. You got menu innovation, you know, consumer insights, your traditional aspects of it. At the category level, we have some shared resources and they are an internal creative team that serves the brands. We then have some folks that interact with digital solutions. So for example, a brand, let's just say, is interested in developing uh, curbside capabilities, curbside pickup capabilities. We don't need each brand reinvented that by themselves. These are capabilities that we can have a smaller group of people doing it once and then rolling that out. You know, so, so there's a group that does that. And then we have a group that talks about some initiatives. We call them strategic initiatives. These are initiatives that we want to accomplish that are common across brands. So there are issues around media. There are issues around pricing, analytics, and those sort of things that we are trying to attack in a category level basis. I like having conversations. I've had a, a number of them with focus brands, folks, because I do like the efficiencies of scale because, I mean, restaurants, they don't scale very well on their own. What you're doing at Focus, and it seems like you're just iterating along the way, like trying to figure out where do you get the greatest efficiencies operationally and through marketing and through technology buying. It feels like you're doing some pioneering work. I like to say, Rob, that in the animal kingdom, you have animals who are very big and strong and they can afford to be slow, or you have folks that are very fast and they can afford to be small. But small and slow is a bad combination. You normally don't see too many of those going around. So I give a lot of credit to our, uh, our senior leadership in terms of uh, realizing the importance of leveraging our scale. And, you know, this is a journey. As I said, not everything can be put on a big bucket. We got to ultimately remember that consumers interact with each one of our brands and they have a relationship with each one of our brands. So that's sacred to us. But there are a lot of things that enable that relationship to be successful that can be done on a way that it's efficient, on a way that it's effective, and on a way that it's scalable. Because tomorrow we decide instead of seven brands, we want to be eight, nine, ten. It's a lot easier to put that in a form that you already have molded than really trying to add brands on a one-to-one basis and figuring out where do they fit, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think customers even have relationships at the location level, the franchisee level. They think that that's my Moe's or my Schlotsky's and I have no idea about Focus, that Focus even exists. And while they're loyal to their brand, they've almost actually established that loyalty through an individual proprietor in their neighborhood, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, our franchisee partners are critical to our success. Absolutely critical. They're in the front lines. They're the ones interacting with our guests on a daily basis. And it is really, you know, a partnership that makes this successful. And I know you've done a lot of work on the multi-unit location retail marketing. And I think that, you know, that is one area where we probably still have quite a bit of opportunity, but certainly an area because ultimately we understand particularly, you know, in the last 18 months or so, how important that local community is and that sense of doing business with a local 
shop is for our guests. And they need to understand, and we have an opportunity to explain that, that when they do business with the McAllister's or Schlotsky's of any of our brands in their communities, they're doing business with a local business owner, for sure. I do love the complexity and the challenge of multi-location, especially franchise brands, you know, where there's just so many different layers and interests and but then also there's nothing like a single location mom and pop business right and i think consumers have a special place in their heart for mom and pops and they can often have a bias that way but when you're a franchise and you only own one location you know you are a mom and pop but it just doesn't always come through to the consumer that that's who you are that's where definitely where that local piece and you know a lot of technology comes in to actually make that scalable on a national basis. For sure, for sure. But it's not something you've been dealing with this to some degree for the past few years of your career, but you know the bulk previously was with the Hershey company. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. You know, you were with Hershey for 12 years and I have to say it's probably one of my biggest guilty pleasures is chocolate. And the Hershey Almond Bar is one of my staples, kind of my downfall, especially in the winter when I have to stay inside so much. But that was a completely different marketing challenge with CPG. So I wondered if you could kind of compare and contrast the challenges of, you know, marketing Hershey and, you know, some of those individual products versus what you have now with multi-unit retail. Yeah, no, Absolutely. You know, it was a, a really great time, and I do share some of your love for some wonderful Hershey brands. But, you know, if I, I think about as a marketer of consumer brands in the food space, I'll start with a lot of the similarities because, you know, both QSR and food CPG organizations are dealing with the fact that consumers' relationship with food has gone through a profound transformation in the last five to 10 years. And it affects anybody that deals in the food industry. More and more consumers are interested in where their food comes from, what's in it, why is it in there, the nutritional information. And there's no question that consumers are generally looking for better for you alternatives. And that has, you know, that's sort of that underlying trend that you see no matter what part of the food business, either at home or away from home, you're playing. At the same time, there are also some similarities in the way that consumers are moving from three square meals a day to, to a lot more snacking. That was clearly during my time at Hershey, and it is clear also in the QSR space. You know, I see it in our brands where we have seen increase in, in shareable items, more meals moving from lunch to an afternoon day part as people change a little bit the time that they're eating and what they're eating. And then there's also a common theme around dispersion. In the past, consumers interacted with CPG and QSR brands primarily through multi-unit retail outlets, be it grocery stores or the various restaurants, right? But this is rapidly changing in both cases as you see growth of delivery channels, curbside pickup, click and collect. There's many, many other ways to do that today. So, so really these locations were disrupted in a way that you need to be able to satisfy consumers with way to access your brand from anywhere, anytime. And so there's a lot of similarities that way. You know, from a difference side, clearly the business models are very different, 
right? So a CPG, you're dealing with manufacturing plans, distribution centers, logistics, you know, a lot of that stuff. Where in a franchising-based model, you're not dealing with that. And then there's a lot of differences in the tools that we marketers have available. In CPG, you normally have brands with broad distribution, household penetration, and you tend to focus in brand equity building efforts with a lot of in-store merchandising, right? Because these are broadly available products that are consumed on a very frequent basis. On QSRs, there's an important component of bottom of the funnel marketing, location-based marketing, loyalty, CRM. And as I reflect on this, Rob, I think that the combination is really a powerful thing. I can think that today I'm a much more complete and frankly better professional than I was just a few years ago by having both ends of it. A little bit of the discipline of a classically trained marketer in a CPG environment, but also adding all of these performance-based marketing arsenal tools that are now what we use very frequently in the QSR space. So that's a major difference. Yeah, I am guilty of dispersion with Hershey. I get my candy bars delivered via Instacart from Costco. So (laughs) I'm not going into the store and buying them these days. They're just showing up. Yeah, reduce some of the friction, which is not actually a good thing for me. (laughs) Yeah, and there's profound implications to the labor model, to the real estate model. There's really profound implications on how we do it. And obviously, you know, in the QSR space, we're seeing the appearance in all of these ghost kitchens, which are obviously a consequence of the fact that a lot of people out there are believing that the consumers have no interest in sitting in a dining room anymore. You know, I think the jury is still out. I think we tend to overestimate change in the short term, but we tend to underestimate change in the long term. So I'm not saying that this is not something we need to pay attention. I just think that some of these things tend to move probably a little slower in the short term and then in a much more radical way in the long term. I subscribe to a different version of that quote, which is that people, they overestimate how much they can accomplish in a year and underestimate how much they can accomplish in five years, right? So it kind of applies to us as well, right? Now, given a choice, you know, if you had to choose one or the other for the rest of your life, are you staying in (laughs) multi-unit retail marketing or would you still be open to going back to CPG or something similar? Look, I'm always looking to learn, to exercise my learning muscles for a challenge where I can contribute. And, uh, I think there's, when you're talking about marketing food, there's a lot of similarities. What I love about the QSR environment is just the richness of the data, the one-on-one relationship that we establish with guests, the first-party data, the loyalty interactions, which are a lot less common than in the CPG space. On the other hand, obviously in, in CPG, there's a lot of other tools available to drive down the guest down, the consumer down, the the loyalty funnel. So I'm not sure that I have a preference for one or the other. I think that, you know, there are wonderful brands in in both space. And, you know, ultimately a challenge for a passionate marketer is about creating a need or desire for a brand and making that brand relevant in the lives of our consumers. And that is true in almost any category you work in. Yeah, absolutely. And there are certainly a number of marketing constants and truths that apply no matter what 
product you're trying to sell. I do have to say though, like that first party data is pretty incredible. And just looking at the behaviors that you can dive into about the menu and the frequency and your goal might be to increase frequency and you might actually achieve that goal. But then you notice like, oh, actually we got them coming back more, but then their basket size went down. So we achieved that goal, but you know, we're actually generating less revenue, right? And like you can That's exactly right. Yeah. You can see that like in in almost real time and make adjustments for it. It's just we didn't have that data necessarily available ten years ago or it wasn't in an actionable format, right? That was gonna be my comment. I think we live in a wonderful era as marketers, which is in the past you probably have to choose a straight well, do you want frequency? Do you want to get new users or and the truth is that today you can do yes, 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 and yes. Yeah. Because you not only have the data, but you have the ability to segment and only talk to those people in a way that it's only relevant to them. And that's pretty amazing. And I think that as marketers, we we are really fortunate to have this. Obviously, the trick is always knowing what questions to ask and knowing how to leverage the data into real insights. Because if in one hand, we have all of this amazing data today, on the other hand, consumers have never skipped and jumped ads more often than they do today. So, you know, to a certain extent, something is not jiving or matching, but it's a tall order when you're, let's just say, using Facebook as a way of advertising. And, you know, we're literally competing with my cousin's wedding picture, you know, and if you're really not relevant and don't engage within the first half a second, there's no chance you'd be scrolled. Um, there's no chance. And so it's an incredible responsibility that we have. And that's what makes the job fun and exciting. Um, you know, I think when I think about, you asked earlier a question around how the groups are organized, you know, how the brands are organized, how the categories are organized. And I know a lot of people out there talk a lot about dividing digital marketing for regular marketing or everyday marketing, or however they want to call it. And, and frankly, I, I may be a bit of a contrarian on this topic because I don't quite understand how you separate these things. Um, I see it all as marketing and it is all increasingly digital. Um, so if print, outdoor, radio, right? All of these things a few years ago, you would say, well, that's linear marketing. Well, are these things not digital? Most radio today, most print today, it's all digital, right? You know, it's very hard to separate. I think it's really a disservice to marketing practitioners to try to separate these things in silos. I've seen brands that have the chief marketing officer and they have the chief digital officer and there's some overlap, but they've drawn pretty clear lines from their responsibilities. You were previously marketing in digital with Anians. Is that carrying over to the restaurant? Do you combine, in your case, digital and marketing into one role? Yes, we do. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have folks that are helping us with the technology and folks that are helping us enable the things we want to do. But from an execution standpoint, the consumer does not think about it in digital or non-digital terms. And I think we shouldn't either. There's plenty of empirical work suggests that most successful business combines tactics and platforms, right? The goal is to connect with consumers wherever they want. So sometimes you have 
reach vehicles that can be most cost-effective for top-of-the-funnel efforts, acquiring new customers, and then performance marketing and retargeting efforts can be good for bottom-of-the-funnel efforts. It is very hard to be successful doing only one or the other. And that's what I mean by combining these things. Now, as I said, there are folks that are specialized in making sure that we can do that, that the apps are built the right way, and then the infrastructure, the CDPs, and all of the MarTech stack that we have. And these are very specialized jobs. And, and obviously, I will only cause damage close to any of that stuff. But we have these. But the important thing is to think about in a holistic way. And this is what I try to impart to the team members is think about with the consumer lens of it, and then the silos will, will disappear. So let's talk a little bit about your tech stack, you know, marketing in particular, but kind of even more broadly. Is this something that's currently deployed consistently across the restaurant brands or is some shared between the brands and then other tools are kind of chosen on a brand by brand basis? Yeah, as I mentioned before, we used to manage our business in a fairly decentralized way prior to getting into these category structure. And nowhere this is more apparent, our digital infrastructure. It is very fragmented. So I'll give you an example, right? If, if we have a new location, open or close, we currently have to make changes in six or seven different platforms, okay? It is not only the work that it requires, but it's prone to human error and all sorts of other things, right? And that is because our loyalty programs are all built in different infrastructures. So think about when we add a new functionality to one of them, it doesn't add to all of them. It only serves that one brand. And then you need to build it in another platform and then another platform. Luckily, this will soon change. We are embarking in a large project to unify all of our MarTech stack, not only our brochure front end, but also commercial data structure. And that will provide us with much more analytical capabilities for apps, websites, demand generation. But we're just embarking on this. It will probably take anywhere between 12 to 16 months to finish it up. That is work that obviously does not happen in, in the marketing groups, but we are obviously big stakeholders of that work. It's a collaboration among a variety of folks in RRT, retail, digital, because at the end of the day, it needs to also work with your POS systems and everything else. It's a long answer to say that we're very fragmented today, Rob, and we can't wait to put everybody in a more consistent platform. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it happen before and it's just, it's great when you see all those efficiencies firing across an organization. I mean, is everything on the table right now? I mean, like down to the POS system? Probably not to the POS system. We are trying to make decisions that will help us converge on POS. We're changing a few of the brands to cloud-based systems where they weren't before. So we're trying to reduce the number of suppliers we work with. But no, POS systems are not part of this effort. This is really about the digital infrastructure we have today for loyalty, web, and, uh, and e-commerce. Right. Yep. And SEO probably yes. reputation, things That's like that. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So I referred you to this piece that I wrote for Forbes. CMOs need to think and act locally in the age of COVID and beyond. We kind of touched on this earlier, but are you seeing that this is true kind of first? And is this something that you're 
thinking will have a lasting impact on consumer behavior? Yeah. So first of all, I congratulations on the piece. I had a chance to read and I loved it. I love how you sort of really broke down into the pillars required for local targeting. So, you know, I think that you did a great job providing sort of an easy roadmap that we can all take. I think that where we are today, we're probably not as local as we could be. I'll be the first one to admit. We probably currently have the basics covered, as you pointed out, listings, local pages, reputation management, all of that. We have efforts around all of these areas, you know, local searches and all of that. Our opportunity is probably around engaging local managers in a way that is both safe, efficient, and scalable. And so uh, that's an area that we probably have some ways to go. But it's definitely something that I think that will give us fruits in the future, for sure. It is something that we need to be engaging in a very urgent manner because, you know, we do know that businesses in this business, business happen locally, one location at a time, right? I think that what is interesting to me is in many times, geography by itself may not be the best way to segment or tier markets. So, you know, we know, for example, in many ways that some of our locations in downtown Atlanta behave very similar to locations in downtown Charlotte, much more so than if you drive 20 miles north of Atlanta somewhere else, which may look very, very different. So I think we need to be smart. The thing we have to keep in mind is these efforts need to be both efficient and scalable, right? Because frankly, the advantage that we have over many others is our size. And we need to make sure that we use the right tools so that the local efforts are done in an efficient and scalable way. I mentioned this earlier, but you know, like when I started into this space, my operating thesis was that, you know, mom and pops were historically at a disadvantage pre-digital, you know, pre-social, because big brands, national brands just kind of had that brand recognition, the ability to do national advertising and, you know, really get into the minds of consumers. And mom and pops that had, you know, a limited set of tools to be able to market locally. I mean, a lot of it, you know, just kind of came down to word of mouth. And all of a sudden, a mom and pop has all these tools with Facebook and the social platforms and the search, and they could do a lot of that themselves. And I said, I thought to myself, you know, actually, now the, the national chains are going to be at a disadvantage because they only have one Facebook page and it's just the big brand page. Right. So if you've got a local deli, you know, that's a mom and pop, they've got a Facebook page, they're doing all of these things because it's kind of live or die for them. Right. And they don't have a parent brand that's doing anything for them. And then you got a Schlotzky's across the street that's just kind of relying on what the parent brand can do to drive awareness. They don't necessarily have those tools. So that's kind of like where I came from in trying to solve for that with technology and make it so that the local franchisee could be doing kind of one-to-one countering the mom and pop. <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. I don't like the way that I describe that, <laughs> you know, trying to create technology to take on mom and pops, but mom and pops aren't going anywhere. You know, I think that your insight was spot on, Rob. And if I think about, I'll go back, put my CPG hat on it. If you think about what most legacy food companies have seen over the last eight to 10 years is that an incredible emergence of small brands, some people call artisanal brands or 
challengers, challenger brands that have popped up that have challenged almost in every category. You know, it started with Chobani in yogurt and then Kind in snack bars. And you can go on and on and on in a variety of categories. And the reason is that these brands suddenly started popping up and gaining market share from established players is the fact that the advantages of scale are becoming less and less prevalent. You mentioned you used to need national advertising. Well, now you can do it very efficiently on the local level. Well, you needed to have a very large sales force in order to go into big retailer chains. Well, now you can have D2C, right, in a much more efficient way that you used before. Well, you needed to have a large R&D facility and big plants and all that. Well, now you can ghost kitchen and contract manufacture. So most of the advantages that large scale food companies or QSRs for that matter had are quickly disappearing. And I think you're seeing that in a variety of measures, but I have seen studies measuring market share of what you would call challenger brands or artisanal or local brands. And in the last few years, they have done nothing but gain market share on legacy competitors. I hadn't actually thought about that concept more broadly in other categories. So yeah, yeah it's I, happening I, everywhere. It is a global trend and it's touching everybody. For sure. I want to kind of wrap things up with some career advice. You know, there are kind of like three themes that I like to focus on with Clicks to Bricks. The first one is human interest. And, you know, that's who you are, what makes you interesting. The second is marketing practice, which we've talked quite a bit about. But then the third is career advancement, you know, and so that's one of the reasons that this podcast exists is to give multi-location marketers insights, advice on how to position themselves and, and how to become a CMO or a marketing leader like yourself. So first, what's the advice that you're giving to junior marketers? And then second, how is your organization structured for career advancement? Yeah. So my first advice is that do not limit yourself to what you think you're good at or what you know and understand. Seldom careers are linear. You go from the associate manager to the manager to the senior manager. You know, very seldom this happens. I encourage folks to be a generalist. So if you're in a multi-unit restaurant business, Spend time in the restaurants, spend time with the operation folks. Operations are critical, critical. You could have the best ideas as a marketer, but if they're hard to implement at the restaurant level, they won't go anywhere. Understand the realities of the franchisee, understand the realities of the business owner, right? We were just talking about local marketing, right? How would you go about trying to grow catering business around your area? There's nothing more local than generating demand for your catering business, probably three, four miles around your restaurant location. So, you know, you need to understand these realities. So try to expand your horizons. The second thing I would say from the get-go, act as if this was your own retirement dollars that were on the line. If this was your money, would you really recommend somebody spending this or doing it this way, right? It's sort of that owner mindset because many of us work for large corporations or other larger companies and we're not putting our own dollars. But the truth is our franchisee partners are many times putting their retirement dollars on the line. So we need to act 
as if these were our own dollars. And what I would say, Rob, in terms of the traits that I try to incentivize or try to push people to develop, I'll go back to the theme of three things, right? There's three things I hire for. One is passion, because I think that this demands a lot from us. If you're not passionate about, it's hard to fake it. It's very hard to fake it. So I want to see people who are passionate about what they do. The second one is curiosity. And again, go back to being a generalist. Go spend time in the restroom. Go spend time with operations. Ask lots of questions. Why is this done that way? Curiosity is really the gateway to learning. And I think that having a curious mind will eventually lead you to become knowledgeable in many areas that you wouldn't otherwise if you don't ask questions. And the third one for everybody who wants to sort of move the ladder, which will eventually mean you're going to be leading people, is empathy. Empathy is really critical for you to be a thoughtful leader, for you to have high quality folks that want to work with you and for you. What I always tell my team is that if I am good enough to hire really, really good people, I know that all of you have a chance to every day go work for somebody else. You're good enough to go choose where you want to work. So I need to earn every day the right of you wanting to get up and come work with me. And I think it's very, very hard to do that unless you have a great deal of empathy. Everything else can be taught, but passion, curiosity, and empathy is very hard. You asked the second piece of it was how you're structuring the teams and the organizations in order to encourage career change. That is another benefit of this new structure, this category structure we created. It just allows you to see things from a different point of view, a different angle. So you're now not working directly on a brand. You're working on behalf of more than one business. You need to check your ego on the side. You're looking at from a different angle. Frankly, you're more on a staff role than you are on an operating role. I think that's really important because on a staff role, you need to really exercise a lot of influencing skills. And so these reorganizations create a lot of opportunities for folks who are curious, raise their hands, and who are willing to take some risks. And there's plenty of folks at Focus that got a chance to do something a little different in this last restructuring we did. And I think that's a great example that's very motivational to folks that work in the organization. One of the things you've said several times is the importance of humility. Yeah. And, you know, where you also said that people's careers won't necessarily be linear. And I've often found that sometimes in your career, you need to take one step back in order to take four steps forward. Right? Absolutely. I actually started a mountain bike outfitter. It was my first company that I started in. I was still in college and we did mountain bike tours and I was the co-founder of this thing, right? And I was running the show and that, you know, kind of had run its course. And I went to a magazine in California as an intern, as an unpaid intern, you know, and it was like, it felt like this huge step back that I was taking to be an intern. But two months into the internship, I was hired as an associate editor. And then a year later, because of an acquisition, I was promoted to editor. You know, wow. So, I mean, I went from intern to editor in a year. 
because I had had all that experience of building this mountain bike outfitter. And I knew if I humble myself and become an intern for this, I would actually advance pretty quickly. And fortunately, that's what happened. But yeah, sometimes you can be the CMO of a small brand. But in order for your career to go forward, you got to take a director of marketing position at a big brand, right? And move ahead. So yeah. That, you- that's exactly right. I was just going to say, I think one of the things I was looking for after you know, my stint at Hershey was working in a smaller organization and a more nimble organization. That was actually part of my criteria. I did not want to go to a legacy food company. And part of the reason was that you know, with less resources, you are forced to be nimble and you are forced to be inventive, creative, and you're forced to be scrappy. And that was exactly what I found when I arrived at Focus. And again, I say today, I'm a much better, more complete professional than I was two and a half or three years ago because of that, for sure. Well, Marcel Nam, thanks so much for sharing your story. Congratulations again on the promotion. Wish you the best of luck and look forward to following your progress. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it on LinkedIn and to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter at clickstobricks.fm for exclusive content and previews of upcoming shows. I'm your host, Rob Reed, and this is Clicks to Bricks, a podcast about multi-location marketing. Mm-hmm.